This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Good evening, everybody. Dummies. Hello, 155. Episode 155, Tuesday, May 18th, 7, 17 p.m. Posthumously from the Colorado Avalanche win last night against St. Louis Blues. A decisive win. Amazing. The two President Cups winners look pretty good. That usually doesn't happen. Carolina did a great job. Played very, very well. And then so did the Avs. And really, those are the only two games that were fairly decisive. All the other games were close and overtime. And it's interesting. So, go Avs up one nothing. I have a rule. I don't talk trash about other teams. I may have done it, but uh, I try not to. It's not a good thing. I uh, take hockey a little personal, and I've lost friendships. So I, I tend to just sing kumbaya. And although I despise other teams, I certainly won't say that during the playoffs. I think it's bad, bad, bad juju. Well, I didn't bring you here for this. There's obviously something we're going to talk about. What are we going to talk about? Well, tonight's show is going to be... I don't know. I think it's full of information. I think it's good information. I think there's some good news here. There's some bad news here. And then there's some news that may, may, might make you feel icky. First thing is vaccinate your kids. Should we vaccinate our children? They're talking about allowing five-year-olds to have the vaccine. I don't know how I feel about it, but I think we'll explore it together tonight. And that's the great thing about this show. Most of the time, my ad lib is just that. It's ad lib. I don't write down my thoughts, and I tend to have strong ones sometimes. Sometimes I am impartial and just get through it. Other times I start cussing like last night. And I think this one is is a personal one to me. So we'll go over that tonight. The next thing is a nation divided. We've talked about it, and we heard that this election would calm things down and we would get back to normal. That's the farthest thing from the truth. We're more divided than we've ever been, and we're going to talk about it tonight and why, and why you could be wrong. I know. That's the one that might make you feel icky. But there is a big thing that happened, a big win for gun rights groups, and we should be celebrating today. The Supreme Court, just a few hours ago, so this might be the first chance you've had to hear this, uh, ruled and and passed judgment upon the liberal search and seizure of firearms. That in the case, we did an episode on it, I'll link it. Uh, In the case of doing a routine stop or probable cause visit to a home, that, and not a routine stop, but a routine visit, say there was a domestic disturbance or an alarm went off or someone was concerned that someone had answered the door in three days, that the police could enter the home and then confiscate and seize all weapons if they felt that there was a threat. So this was a huge case for gun rights and one of the first that the Supreme Court have heard on the new bench. So we'll talk about that tonight. But first, I don't know if you all have heard, but Eminem is not allowed to get the full COVID vaccine, which is interesting. Because he only gets one shot. Mom's spaghetti? No. Okay, rabbit. 
recorded from an undisclosed location. Always honest, always direct. So sit back, relax. Don't unfriend me starts right now. Episode 155, excited to get this started. A lot to talk about tonight. First of all, who am I? What do I do? My name is Matt Spear. I am your host, and I started Don't Unfriend Me when some uh, friends from Texas, I did a rant, and they said, huh, we like it. You should do something else. And I started the show. They probably don't listen anymore. Uh, I'm sure I've alienated just about everybody who, who knows me at one point or another, but I certainly do enjoy the show, and it's amazing how quickly it's grown. It's grown because people like you. If you could do me a favor and like, share, follow, subscribe. If you've watched the video just for a few minutes or you watch it the whole time, just throw a like on that thing. I know everyone asks that. Why do people ask that? Maybe we could talk about that. You hear this. You see all the greats do it, right? And I'm certainly not one of the greats, but people will say, hey, throw me a like, share, and subscribe, and they try clever ways, and they do little special little things like this one right over here that's going to pop up. And I'll tell you the reason why they do that is because it helps get the word out. Number one, it helps have other people see what you see. And then they don't necessarily like to click on ads. But if you like it, they go, oh, well, my friend likes this. We have commonalities. Maybe I will like it. And it grows. This is how we got that 3 million post hit. So every time you do that, it helps. Facebook advertising has kind of hit a threshold with new iOS 14. It's creating some problems for me. So you sharing and liking, subscribing, even if you just read for a second or listen for a second, it helps keep the lights on. So please do, and thank you. After that, if you don't like social media, you can go, no, not to Veteran Crisis Hotline. We'll do that later. But you can not do that either. I don't know what's going on. Buttons, you guys see this? This is just ridiculous. I hope this doesn't cause a seizure for the people on the video. Let me get this right. Okay, here we go. My website, www.dontunfriendme.com. You can get my catalog there, videos, all my podcasts, everything else. If you just visit, and uh, thanks so much. Folks, sometimes it's smooth. Other times there's a little choppiness. We talked about the choppiness last night. But something that's been consistent is this whole premise of a nation divided. We've heard Joe Biden say it constantly. Also, Donald Trump said it. President Obama said it, probably every president since Lincoln and Jefferson and the days of old in the 1800s, we've heard about a nation divided. But what truly does it mean? As a nation, we are humanists first. We're very opinionated people. We all know this. We love to argue. I do. It's how we learn. What's most exciting is finding out you are mistaken. There's nothing quite like it. Now, if you all of your beliefs and your entire moral code is predicated upon this one belief, it may not feel very good. But I think there's something special about sitting down with someone who you respect or admire and having them help you through something and help educate you on the whys. You shouldn't think that way. There's something special about it. And other times it just pisses you off. I realize a lot of people hate to find out they're wrong. I'm not one of them. Acknowledging you were wrong means you were thinking better and making fewer mistakes overall, and that's a good thing, and it should be embraced. All of us should embrace that. 
We are just out of an election year, and we know how contentious it was. Almost everyone, including humanists, are arguing. And what is a humanist? Well, it's a person who respects other people, not admonishes them. I would consider myself a humanist, although I get frustrated as much as anyone. I generally care about other people's opinions, and I bring people with dissenting opinions into my circle. Why? Because it makes us better. We're all discussing different things. Which candidate was better? Who should have won? Was it illegal votes? What direction the country is going to go in? Are we going to be broke? Well, we already are. We know this. These arguments can get very heated. There is a reason religion and politics are not considered appropriate topics for polite conversation at the dinner table or on Thanksgiving. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have the discussions. We just strive to engage in these conversations in a respectful way. And there is a time and a place for this setting. We should also strive to ground our opinions in reality. Make sure what we think we know is actually so. Remaining reality-based when discussing politics is really hard to do, especially with all the disinformation out there. Two instinctual responses make thinking rational about politics very difficult. First, we're tribal people. We're animals. Once we choose a side, we tend to see our side as good and the other side as evil. This is the dichotomy that has happened since we were young. Cowboys and Indians. Spy versus spy, black spy versus white spy, the symmetry, G.I. Joe versus Cobra, Russia versus the United States, Fox News versus CNN, Pepsi versus Coke, Xbox versus PlayStation. We can go on and on, good versus evil, but it's based upon the disposition of the person, not necessarily any fact. It's more of an emotional connection than anything. If the other side is evil, opposing us becomes a moral crusade. Crusades rarely end well. Ask the Moors and the Saxons. If you think your opponent and their supporters are evil, and in this case that would be the Republicans and Democrats, you're acting instinctually and not thinking very rationally. The other thing we do once we make a decision to support a candidate or a position, we tend to look for information that validates our choice and ignores things that don't. And this is okay. Listen, Democrats piss me off more than anything, but so do Republicans. There is nothing wrong with getting frustrated and upset with somebody, but alienate somebody. Take them out of your life. Get into a fight. End a friendship. It doesn't make much sense. It's not rational, after all. The tendency is called confirmation bias, and we all fall prey to it. No, this is not unconscious bias. This is confirmation bias, something you're completely aware you're doing, and it's very easy. We all seek attention. We all seek acceptance. And that's really what confirmation bias is. We do ourselves and our country a disservice when we fail to accept contradictory information. It doesn't mean you have to believe. It doesn't mean you have to change your mind. But you should listen, especially if you want that to be done upon you. The golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. When our tendency to think of the opposing viewpoint as evil This is combined with our tendency to ignore evidence that we might be mistaken. Get a perfect storm of irrationality because of this. To quote from Humanism and its Aspirations, Humanists long for and strive toward a world of mutual care and concern, free of cruelty and its consequences, where differences are resolved cooperatively without resorting to violence. I think and suspect most people agree with this statement. 
The first step toward reaching this ideal is to remind ourselves the people we disagree with aren't evil. Just have a difference of opinion, even though that opinion might be polar opposite of what we believe. For example, abortion. That is nested inside of us at a very young age, that life is paramount. It's what makes us human. It is the Lord's greatest gift. And to take a life, to take our own life or the life of another is a sin. And it's one of the largest sins that we can actually perform. But on the other hand, there is also people who are devoid of God in their lives and don't necessarily have the moral compass that we do. Does that make them right or wrong? Are they still headed north? Probably. Will they get there by different means? Yes. Does that make them evil? Well, you can make that argument that, yes, it is absolutely evil to murder a child. That is, as long as you see it as a child. And let's face it, people who are not pro-life don't see it as a child. Does that mean I agree with them? No. Does that mean I think they're completely irrational? Yes. Does it mean I don't have to listen? Absolutely not. I have no obligation to listen to anyone, but I do have an obligation if I begin the conversation. That's just manners. It's polite. And if you are so altruistic and your side is so right, what is the harm in listening? We tend to deflect. We tend to say, well, that person's just going to say this, 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 and this. Well, if you understand that they're going to say that, then point that out in the beginning of your argument. Take that away from them. The reason why is you're going to get to the point much faster. If you're simply waiting for a reason to discredit somebody or move away from the conversation, I dare I say it's maybe a conversation you shouldn't begin at all. A final note, at some point you will find yourself arguing with a person who clearly bases this opinion and their opinion on their worst tribal impulses and who only consumes information that confirms their biases. You will be tempted to think that they are idiots being duped by evil people, and I can understand why we think that. Is it wrong for them to think the same about us? Why? Do you think the North Koreans think they're evil? Do you think ISIS thinks they're evil? Or do they have justifications in their own mind of why Americans are truly evil? The truth is, is that the people who we argue with aren't evil. Clacking off a vest in an airport is evil. Setting off and killing your people through starvation or setting off an ICBM and randomly launching it over Japan is indeed evil. But people who argue with this are not. They are human just like you, and they might just be right. So show some compassion and some humility, please. The divisiveness in America in American politics is certainly nothing new, nor is it always a bad thing. A healthy democracy requires a regular contest of ideas, and bipartisanship can sometimes mask deep social inequities. In the 1870s, for example, as I mentioned earlier, political compromises disenfranchised women and racial minorities. In 1950, some political scientists worried that the U.S. wasn't polarized enough, that is, politics were too localized, and that voters would be better served by a two-party system with distinct positions and national platforms. More recently, however, studies reveal that out-of-party hatred now exceeds in group solidarity. In addition, Americans' voting behavior today is driven more strongly by contempt for the opposition than by support for one's own side. Most people loathe their own side. 
They may claim themselves to be a Democrat or Republican, but they truly are disenfranchised with the party that they will defend tooth and nail ad nauseum. For what other reason than it absolutely is an ad, not an advocate for their party, but an adversary to the opposing party, which is the most important thing. Did really people vote for Biden because they thought he was the best choice? One old white guy for another old white guy? No, they voted for him because it wasn't Trump. And we voted for Trump because it wasn't Hillary Clinton. Did anyone truly believe that Donald J. Trump was going to be one of the best presidents we've had in our history? And he was. And I don't care what anyone says. History will show that he was. Yes, he was arrogant and pompous and sometimes an ass. But ultimately, he did more good than harm. And please, don't throw the COVID thing at me. I don't want to hear it. I don't care who was president. He's not Jesus. Nobody's stopping a pandemic. Could he have done things better? Yes. Every president can do things better, but he was still a great president. But the point is, nobody thought that. Let me guess. You watched The Apprentice and you said, oh, this guy, he's going to just tear it up as the president, please. It was laughable at best. But we all got stuck with the laugh when we realized that he was a terrific president. The 30 Years War, some of you may have heard of this. The wary citizen might inquire, how did our politics get so toxic? Is it possible to interpret the last four years as a deviation? Is this something new? Is this something different? Unfortunately, no, it's not Zima. The researchers say that it most assuredly has been happening since inception. Their paper points to cause and trends that date back 30 years or more. Part of the story has to do with Republicans and Democrats having sorted into identity groups that extend beyond politics. These mega-identities have grown almost mutually incomprehensible. Studies show that each group dramatically misperceives the other. As the researchers point out, Republicans estimate that 32% of Democrats are LGBTQ. that sound right to you? 32% of the entire Democratic Party is either lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer. Actually, no, 32% is an astronomical figure, when in reality it is only 6%. And let's not forget that there are some LGBTQ conservatives. Democrats estimate that 38% of Republicans earn over $250,000 per year, which is interesting. It's actually only 2%. Some of you Democrats listening, if there are any, does that sound like a number that you would believe, 2%? These identities are reinforced by dueling media ecosystems, which the researchers say can be traced back to the Reagan administration's move to terminate the fairness doctrine put in place after World War II to reduce bias in broadcasting. In the intervening decades, this move has given us Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, MSNBC, The Young Turks, and CNN. And in the last decade, Facebook and Twitter have intensified sectarianism, since posts that use inflammatory and moralizing language are promoted by the algorithms meant to push engagement. There's also the trend of dark divergence and stark divergence among political elites who increasingly depend on extremist donors and who, beginning with Newt Gingrich and his followers in 1980s and 90s, 80s and 90s, often relied on the rhetoric of moral outrage to gain support as the researchers point out, and this was also true for Kennedy and Tip O'Neill, who were Democrats. The consequences are predictably dire, argue the researchers. Increased social alienation, a breakdown of civic trust and norms, and a compromised democracy in which leaders 
are beholden to extremist donors that care more about partisan purity than actually the constituents they represent. Partisans on both sides have generated coherent narratives, which they experience as capital T truth, says Finkel. And although, not Einhorn, and although the details of the two narratives are entirely different, they align in promoting the belief that the other side is so corrupt that our side would be gullible dupes to adhere to the sorts of norms that have long upheld democracy in America, Finkel wrote. The effects have been on full display in the country's response to COVID-19. We've all seen it. We've all lived through it. Perhaps most alarming is the tendency of partisans in response to the existential threat the other side poses to justify anti-democratic behavior, violating election laws, flouting checks and balances, even promoting unrest. As political secretarianism has surged in recent years, the researchers write so too is support for violent tactics. How do we lower the temperature? What can we do as policymakers or citizens to mitigate political secretarianism? Say that time three fast. Say that three times really fast. Jeez, in the U.S. How do we build a political culture that's focused on ideas and not unbridgeable identities? The short answer is slow and steady. There aren't any silver bullets, Wang says. Still, the researchers discuss a few possible interventions. For example, correcting our misperceptions of those in the opposing group might help reduce hostility. And learning to focus on policy details rather than identity groups might give partisans a greater appreciation for complexity and foster a sense of humility. According to the authors, leaders of civic, religious, and media organizations committed to bridging divides can look to such strategies to reduce intellectual self-righteousness. That can contribute to political secretarianism. Sectarianism. Did I say secretarianism? Oh, gosh. I'm not going to go back and edit it, folks. Sectarianism. It's a big word. Big word. Worth 10 cents. A big question is what to do about social media's influence. How do we encourage people to spend time assessing the accuracy of claims on Facebook or Twitter? One potential strategy is to rely on crowdsourcing to identify accurate content and reward it through the algorithm, thus reducing the spread of false hyperpartisan posts and memes. And this is what's happening on my page. Obviously, the algorithm has changed. My memes used to blow up, and now they barely get any likes because they're not being shown to as many people. And this is what Facebook is doing, is throttling the information. It's their right. I don't agree with it. It's censorship, but it is what it is. What can you do, even when you pay for an ad now? The response is nothing what it was pre-election. And it could be that it's summer, almost summer. People are getting outside. Mass mandates are lifting. And they're sick and tired of being on Facebook and the computer. And they just want to get out. And listening to me is not their number one priority. However, campaign finance reform might also help with this by eliminating huge contributions from the most extreme donors and fixing partisan gerrymandering would encourage more competition in the marketplace of ideas. These are also strategies that might work at the individual level, such as learning to adopt some of the moral language of the other side when engaging with individuals with a different political identity. For example, Liberals could discuss mask wearing in terms of homeland security, or conservatives could talk about deficit reduction in terms of caring for poor Americans in the future. Both make very valid arguments and come from both sides of the spectrum. 
Sometimes a different frame or use of language can be quite powerful. When you're dealing with parallel realities, you have to find effective ways to communicate across that divide. Researchers hope that their own reframing of the challenges facing the nation spurs meaningful discussion and perhaps even action by academics and policymakers. Hopefully, we'll get great feedback and some of these interventions can be tested or applied, but we see this as a first step and there's such a long way to go. We haven't even taken that first step. In fact, I don't even think we have an inkling of thought to begin this. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, I never considered a difference of opinion in politics and religion and philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. Those words are clearer than they've ever been. It was written in the 1800s. This is not a new fight. This is not a new struggle. It's simply faster than it's ever been before. A moment's notice, you can have information go across the globe in a nanosecond. The level of communication that happened in the 1800s would one person would say something, three weeks later, the other person might hear it at a bar or read it in a local flyer, not even having newspapers back then. The ability for us to disseminate as much negativity as we do, it's staggering. And it's amazing that there's any positivity left in the world. But somehow, as human beings, we find the way. And the reason why is because of our soul. Maybe that's the problem. We think too much with our hearts and minds. And we've lost our ability to reflect on our internal feelings in our souls. And whether you find that through science or through God or for any other justification, whether it's theology or some type of type of ology other than that, You're going to have to figure out how to influence yourself to bring a more positive attitude towards the other side. Because the problem is we've drawn a line in the sand and both have said, well, I'm not going to do that. I have nothing in common with Democrats. Well, then maybe that's where we start is the fact that we don't have anything in common and finding mutual ground is probably the terra firma that we need to stand on versus the needles that we are constantly moving around along the eggshells. A big win for gun advocates. The Supreme Court of the United States has ruled 9-0, 9-0, that police in Rhode Island acted illegally when they seized a man's gun from his home without a warrant. This was a rebuke not just to overzealous police officers and gun control advocates, but to the Biden administration, which had asked the court to uphold the lower court ruling in Coniglia versus Strom. The case revolved around a man named Edward Coniglia his wife believed with some justification that her husband might kill himself. The next day, she asked for the officers to perform a wellness check on him. They did, and Mr. Coniglia had calmed down and said he would never, ever commit suicide. The officer still asked him to get a psychological evaluation, despite the fact that he agreed that the officers told him and his wife that they wouldn't take his guns, they did so anyway, with no warrant, no threats, no imminent danger to anyone, and no ruling from a court. That is, illegal search and seizure. The officers simply decided that they didn't think he should have guns, so they confiscated the weapons. The Biden administration agreed with this. Their rationale, bullshit, was, quote, a warrant should not be presumptively required when a government official's action is objectively grounded in a non-investigatory public interest, such as health or safety. The ultimate question in this case is therefore not whether the respondent officer's actions fit within some sort of narrow warrant exception, but instead whether those actions were responsible. And under all of the circumstances here, they were. It's almost like Jen Sucky said that. That is the most 
gargantuan load of horse shit I've ever heard in my life. So let me get this straight. We don't have to have cause anymore. We don't have to have a warrant. We just simply need to say, is this reasonable? Can I beat this person with a baseball bat simply because I find it reasonable because he beat his wife? If that's what we're going to do, then we're going to have modern-day lynch mobs with a badge and a gun. And isn't that what we supposedly already have with the black community? Why are we trying to fight something, supposedly, that's already happening all the time? Well, the fact is it's not happening. And this is the fear. This is the fear from Republicans who are saying, wait a second, you have to have legal search and seizure. There has to be law. But the Democrats don't want that. They want to grab the guns, and they're going to do it in any way, shape, or form that they can. Because the one thing that they can't touch, the one thing that they can't desanctify and ruin is the Constitution of the United States, no matter how hard they try. This argument, were it accepted, it would essentially obliterate the Fourth Amendment because the exceptions they are asking for are anything but narrow. They're such wide scope. I don't think this person should have a gun. I don't think this person should have a concealed carry. I don't think this person should be able to buy ammo for a year. Where does it stop if you feel that you're on the moral high ground? Is that enough to go ahead and the inalienable rights that we have to make them devoid? Of course not. You can't do that. This is what the Democrats are arguing. The number of these issues that many people in 2021 consider to be related to the health and safety are practically, practically infinite. Happily, not only did the Supreme Court reject the Biden administration's argument, even the liberal justices thought it had no merit. Clarence Thomas noted in his opinion for the court, the Fourth Amendment protects the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable search and seizures. The very core of this guarantee is the right of a man to retreat into his own home and there be free from unreasonable government intrusion. In this case, Freedom and the Constitution won out, while the Biden administration, along with all their gun-grabbing allies, lost. This is why it is so important to understand the law. I have been preaching this since the dawn of time when it comes to this show, so a little less than a year. We have to understand what our rights are. Now, this isn't the time to litigate it in court. The gentleman, Mr. Coniglia, should not have done that in the House. He should not have done it against the police. He should not have threatened or tried to grab the guns. We will have our day in court. That is the great thing about court. But the question is, is what would have happened if they took Mr. Coniglia's guns and someone would have broken in his house? Does that seem that odd? On a long enough timeline with the amount of people on the earth, I guarantee a situation like that could happen where a police officer would take and confiscate somebody's guns and then somebody would break into their home and they have no way to defend themselves. What would happen to the family? We have to ask ourselves these, these, these questions because they're important. They're paramount to our freedoms. The police officers have to have probable cause. They have to have a warrant. And it certainly doesn't matter whether it's reasonable or not. That's for the intent to even suspect somebody. Emotions don't enter this. You have to have fact. Supposition is not a part of this. You must understand that one thing leads to another. If you have someone who's threatening to commit suicide, you absolutely have the right to help them and seek help. But if that person says, no, I don't want it, well, that doesn't really matter. If they've made a credible threat against themselves, legally, the police are required to take care of that person, but not confiscate their guns or take the knives out of the home or take any antidepressants or give them antidepressants. That isn't law enforcement. That's something for a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a judge or a lawyer to litigate. 
not police officers. We have to be careful that we do not create this narrative that police officers are overreaching and evil and want to control us. Because when we do things like this, that narrative will become true. It's certainly not now. But if we don't stop this immediately, get back to the Constitution, stop demonizing police officers, this is what we'll have. We will have the sheriffs versus the local city cops because the city cops are most assuredly on the payroll of these democratically run cities and the rural sheriffs and the constables are on the size of the Republicans. That's the way this works. If you don't believe that, go talk to a sheriff and then talk to a city cop. Police officers are not political figures to be used as a strong arm against the people. Vaccinate your kids or not. I want to be clear. I am not an anti-vaxxer. I think people who do not get their kids vaccinated are idiots. I don't want polio. I don't want typhoid. I don't want whatever else. The notion is out there, though, that public school students should not return to in-person learning until they've been vaccinated. That proposition scares the shit out of me. There are a few reasons for this. One of them is that I have my own experience with this. My parents put me on Ritalin when I was a young kid. I had chronic nosebleeds. I had tremors. I had brain zaps. I had the inability to sleep. I had weight fluctuation. I wasn't able to focus and concentrate. It had a horrible effect on me. And now they're finding out that that did permanent damage to most people who took it at that age. I'm not saying that we can't vaccinate children. I'm saying that maybe we should slow down just a little bit. We have actually seen states that have reported zero deaths. Texas was the first one. No COVID-related deaths for the first time in over a year. We're seeing Florida. We're seeing other free red states open up with no ill effect. Schools have been in back in session now for a month and a half, two months in most areas. We haven't seen increased amount of cases. Maybe we need to slow down. These reasons of why schools can and should be open 100% capacity before a vaccine for those under 16 is available, and it's an argument that should be listened to. For kids, the risk of missing school dwarfs the risk of COVID-19. Kids are less likely to acquire SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, than adults. Several meta-analysis confirm that in contract tracing studies, kids are approximately half as likely to acquire the virus as other household contacts with the same exposure. In addition, the risk of death or other bad outcomes is low for children. Between March and October 2020, among those between the ages of 5 and 14, the risk of dying of COVID in the United States was one in a million. (coughs) To put that in perspective, in that same age group during non-COVID times, the risk of suicide is 10 times higher. For young adults ages 15 to 24, the risk of dying from COVID-19 was 9.9 in 1 million, and they were also generally 10 times more likely to commit suicide. A study in Sweden where 1.95 million kids younger than age 16 attended schools without masks between March 2020 and June 2020, uh, 15 or 1 in 130,000 developed severe COVID-19 and none died. Contrast these outcomes with those of adults for the sake of comparison. Imagine 100,000 infected people at different ages using data from meta-analysis conducted by an international team. Two of those age 10 might die compared to 1,400 adults aged 65 and 15,000 adults aged 85. In other words, the risk of an 85-year-old dying from COVID-19 is 7,500 times greater than that of a 10-year-old. 
Does that mean we shouldn't get them vaccinated? I'm not saying that. The point is, is that we need to take precautions, right? Maybe vaccination isn't the answer. Maybe little Johnny and little Susie don't run all over with grandpa and grandma. And we continue to social distance until they can be vaccinated. And then at that point, there isn't a risk, right? Isn't that what the CDC says? Meanwhile, school closure is associated with considerable harms to children. Mental health problems are on the rise. Abuse has gone undetected, and children with disabilities are no longer benefiting from educational and other programs. With proper use of precautions, such as masks, the chance of spread is very low, even without vaccines, as shown in all the recent analysis by three CDC-controlled prevention researchers. When you put it all together, it is clear that adult interests have been prioritized over children's well-being by closing schools. For kids to return to school, we should support teachers being vaccinated. Though this is not essential, the use of indoor masks, capping classroom size at 20, quarantining students if symptomatic cases occur, and distancing between classes, these were precautions used in the CDC analysis. Vaccine data will take a while. It's not going to happen overnight. Current emergency use authorization of the Pfizer vaccine permits adults as young as 16 to receive the vaccine, and ongoing trials are recruiting kids as young as 12, sometimes 5 which may yield some results later this year. If these successful trials happen, will they extend that to nine-year-olds? Trials, including even younger individuals, may not yield results until 2022. Kids can't wait for the results of these trials before returning to their lives. Do kids in schools drive COVID-19 spread is the question. In the CDC analysis, when precautions were used, zero of 654 staff members acquired COVID-19 in school. One well-done study from Germany took advantage of the staggered summer break to explore the impact of school closure and reopening on COVID-19 cases and found no association between closing or opening schools and overall cases. This data further erodes the claim that kids need to be vaccinated to slow the spread of the virus. An emergency use authorization may not be appropriate, and the entire premise of an emergency use authorization is that when faced with an emergent biological, chemical, radiological, or nuclear threat, the FDA can allow products to be used based on lower levels of evidence than traditional approvals. A key provision of that is there are no adequate approved and available alternatives. There's no question that COVID-19 is an emergency for adults, a catastrophic disease that becomes more deadly with advancing age, But it isn't that for children. For them, it's a respiratory pathogen with a rate of harm that is comparable to other annual respiratory pathogens like influenza. Holding that an emergency youth authorization is not appropriate for SARS-CoV-2 vaccine for children is my position and others, which should instead proceed via traditional FDA approval pathways. And once it is, I'll be more inclined once we have some data. Vaccinating kids to slow the spread of the pandemic cannot be justified if adults are choosing not to be vaccinated. If you truly believe in this process, you need to be vaccinated as well. It's not just for your kids. You should get it too. Does that mean I'm going to get it? No. Does that mean my kids are going to get it? Absolutely not. But if you are an advocate for vaccination of your children, then you most assuredly need to do the same. The risk-benefit calculus suggests that adults will derive more benefit from the vaccine than children because the virus is more lethal in adults, period. If parents are reluctant to send their kids to school before children are vaccinated, they should be educated in a way that puts those risks in perspective. Although a formal approval process will further slow any pediatric vaccine, I believe this is justified to ensure a favorable risk-benefit profile. In the meantime, schools should and can reopen. The vaccine's harm-benefit profile may be suboptimal in kids. And this is really the last consideration. 
is that we do not know if a vaccine will have a favorable risk-benefit profile, gain FDA approval, and be palatable to parents. Consider what might happen to a million kids who receive a vaccine that works as well in kids as it does in adults with comparable side effects. Assume the same 95% relative risk education seen in studies of Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna vaccines in adults. The vaccine might save one life for every million kids who get it. At the same time, assume the vaccine has side effects comparable to adults for the second Moderna dose in adults. In that scenario, 45,000 kids will develop severe headaches requiring analgesics and interfering with daily living. 14,000 will have a fever higher than 104 degrees for less than a day, and 880 will have this fever last for more than a day. This happens not because these side effects are common. They are rare but because you have to vaccinate 1 million kids to save one life. And at that age group, it's 74 million people. My point is is that vaccine side effects, which are absolutely justified in adults, and full disclosure, I have not been vaccinated. It might be tough to sell children and parents simply because the absolute benefits to kids is very small given the low absolute risk of developing severe COVID-19 or dying from it. Closing thoughts. The COVID-19 pandemic has harmed children, not because they have fallen ill from the virus for the most part, but by the choices societies have made to protect adults who are vastly more likely to suffer from the disease. In many places, kids have already lost a year of school, development, and life. A vaccine for kids will not happen in the short term, and emergency regulatory pathways for one or more may not be appropriate. The risk and benefit will need scrutiny. We must not keep the lives of children on hold waiting for what might never come. As Vladimir Kogan and I, or Vladimir Kogan has argued elsewhere, schools should open now after the impacts to teachers, parents, society, and schools are taken into consideration. We're open four days a week. We should be open five. The problem is this, is that this whole thing, all the evidence early on were that kids were not susceptible to this virus. Now they're saying that it's increased and children are more likely to get it. Here's what it comes down to. This is a scary thing if you get it, period. Everyone's in doubt. I have been absolutely adamant. I'm not getting a vaccine. I don't care if I get it. I hardly wear a mask. And I, if I got it, I would probably be nervous. But there are so many other things that can get you faster than COVID-19. We need to keep it in perspective. Children are not necessarily super spreaders. Children can get it, but at the school, they are relatively safe. It's a controlled environment. It's clean. It is, they are protected with face masks. They are not allowed to sit next to each other in close groups. It is the epitome of a controlled environment that you do not get in restaurants. You do not get shopping. It's nothing like that. That's the thing about school. This is the reason why people don't stab each other with scissors, because the scissors are duller than a frickin' butter knife. It's a controlled environment. Teachers are in charge. They watch over the kids and make sure they follow policies and rules. They're extremely clean and detailed about cleanliness and habits and washing their hands and not eating each other's food and spitting everywhere. They have to face mononucleosis, hand, foot, and mouth disease every single year, influenza. These things are not new to teachers, and they understand how to keep the kids safe. Someday soon, we're going to look back, and I've said this many times on COVID, and understand that we did a lot of things wrong, and we did some things right. The one thing we most assuredly have done wrong is taking one year of social growth from our children. They were already detached enough, 
And what have we done? We put them in front of computers and iPads and phones, which is the worst possible thing for social development. We owe them a year. We owe them a chance to get back in school. And more importantly, we need to stop being selfish and give back to the kids because we have been taking more than we will ever be able to repay. Folks, that's it for my show tonight. Thank you so much for watching. If you enjoyed 155, come back tomorrow for 156. I will go out like I always do with the Veteran Crisis Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. Press 1. 22 veterans a day commit suicide from traumatic brain injury, PTS, depression, anxiety. It is way too many. They need your help. Please reach out to a veteran, especially if you haven't talked to one recently. If you can't make that call, you can reach out to me, and I will do it for you or with you. Anything I can do to help if that doesn't work, you can go to don'tunfriendme.com, click on the VCL link, and you'll be connected to a Skype operator immediately free of charge. If you are a civilian, they will also help you and find the right place. They don't turn away anyone. VCL is an amazing, amazing place. Folks, thank you so much. going to be a great night tonight. Astros are playing. Colorado Avalanche play tomorrow for game two. I hope you're enjoying some hockey after my last episode. I hope you enjoyed tonight's episode. And remember, please throw me a like, share, and subscribe, and a follow. It helps, keeps the lights on, and God doesn't kill a puppy. I'll see you tomorrow, everybody. Have a good night.